Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. We're off the mat today, and I'll be addressing a question or a request for discussion by one of my students. This podcast is going to be on the sensei-deshi relationship. And the angle I'm going to take is, do you need one? I think today it's becoming quite common to question whether a teacher is needed or to even wonder what role a teacher plays in one's training. I think it's been a long, slow almost undetectable process that has made it possible for asking that question. I think it's been, I think it is related, that process is related to many of the other topics covered thus far in our podcast. But let's just start with A simple answer, but a very poor one. So do you need a sensei? It depends. Depends on what? Depends upon what you want to accomplish with your practice. Excuse me. So let's start with those occasions when I would suggest you do not need one. And let's say up front that most of these occasions are actually coming to dominate what it means to have an Aikido practice and what it means to do Aikido even what we're supposed to accomplish through Aikido or want through Aikido. So if your goal is to learn Aikido Waza, And if learning Aikido Waza means memorizing the sequence of steps, the hand positions, the arm movements, if your practice is centered around that, And you can come to determine whether that is the case or not by looking at what you're doing and what you're not doing. Because actions, as has been said in other podcasts, actions are always the most telling. And actions should be believed over any words to the contrary. So I would say a practice is centered on the learning of technique. And here, let's just be specific, on the learning of Kihon Waza. If 
one, that is where the majority of your time is spent. Two, that is where the majority of your resources are spent. And three, that is where the majority of your future projections are aimed. So examples of this would be if you are predominantly going to your dojo And what you do when you're there is Kihonwaza training. With few hours given to even other types of training. Let's just say few hours given to Jiwaza or Kaishiwaza or Henkawaza. No hours given to scenarios. And each week is part of each month, wherein each month aims at an apex moment or a watershed moment, which consists of a test for rank, wherein at each test, the majority of time is given towards Kihonwaza. If your resources, let's just take money. The money you give to your art, wherein that is the majority of your practice as described, and there's no other competing outlet upon which you spend your money, wherein, for example, you spend money for ranking certificates that are based upon Kihonwaza or testing fees that are based upon tests on Kihonwaza or at seminars where you practice Kihonwaza. And those funds in no great way are ever allocated away from or differently from the centrality of Kihonwaza. Then your practice is centered on learning techniques. And or if your sense of progress in the art consists of learning more techniques or in becoming skilled at the techniques you know. And progress is not associated with and not in any great way with other signs or other aspects that could be deemed as skillful, then your practice is centered on learning techniques. And I would add to this a caveat. It's one that probably doesn't have to be said but for a minority of technique-oriented people. 
But here, when I'm referring to a technical centering, I'm referring to an outward manifestation of form. I'm talking about limbs and postures externally observed and organized. I'm not talking about the internal aspects of Kihonwaza. And the reason why I say it doesn't have to be said is because anybody who is taking seriously the internal aspects of Kihonwaza would not meet the first three criteria I gave. There would be much of training that would have to compete with the repetition of form in order for those internal skills to be developed. So for that, if, if my Aikido and the goal of my Aikido, the aim of my Aikido and the practice of my Aikido is technically centered, then I'm going to say, you do not need a teacher. And this is because the overall, by far, determining factor for skill in Kihonwaza is not lineage, but is rather repetitions both the quantity and the quality of repetitions. And this is true if you have a deshi who comes from a very skillful instructor but does not apply the necessary repetitions, both in terms of quality and quantity, that person's skill, technically speaking, will be inferior to someone whose teacher is not as prestigious or as skillful, or even in comparison to someone who has no teacher but has executed the required number and quality of repetitions. Let's, let's put it this way. A teacher from a technical point of view is kind of like nutritional supplements. So if you eat like crap, sleep like crap, you're not going to get much out of your vitamins. But if you eat correctly, you sleep appropriately, you exercise, then vitamins or any other supplement can actually be a supplement and might give you an extra edge of health and wellness. Or another example from firearms. The overall determining factor for hits on target or fast hits on target is the shooting skill of the shooter. And you cannot modify your weapon or choose the ultimate weapon, let's say handgun, and by that, make a bad shooter good. It will never happen. You're wasting your money just like supplements.
you're wasting your money and you are practicing delusion because you are ignoring what is the overall determining factor. If the shooter is already skilled, a finer weapon, or an additional modification might make that shooter gain a slight edge. But so overwhelmingly is the shooter's skill as a determining factor that that skilled shooter could take your crappy weapon stock and unmodified and still outshoot you no matter which weapon a bad shooter might have in their hands. So it's not that you don't gain something from having a skillful or prestigious teacher and even assuming whether they actually have the skill of transmitting information, which is an entirely different skill set from being skilled at the art. But let's assume they can transmit the information. The overall determining factor on whether one becomes skilled in Kihon Waza or not is the number and quality of reps. And that has always been the case. But today, with technology, the role the teacher plays, as slight as I just described it to be, has, even, has been made even more slight. Because technology today allows us To study the movement of another in ways not previously possible. A few decades ago, you had to have the teacher just to learn the technique. The information was not readily available. Where to step? What's its name? What energy cue does it work off of? But today, you can pretty much see the technique of nearly anyone. The information itself is readily available. Now, one might say, that one cannot feel this information, and that that leads to some sort of deviation from what I'm saying. I think there's two things to consider. One, Most practitioners' technique, especially those who are concerned with the external aspects of the art, mostly, right, that's what they're centered on, what you see is what you get. There's no need to pretend that something else is going on. That looks like a lever and a fulcrum, because it is a lever and a fulcrum. That looks like it's accelerating the uke, because it is accelerating the uke. That looks like it's pulling the uke. Yes, it is pulling the uke. And two, feeling the teacher's technique 
contributes only very little to being able to adopt what is being felt. Again, the largest contributing factor is the quality and the quantity of reps. And what often happens is if your quantity and your quality is high enough, particularly your quantity, your body will figure out what is needed and what is actually being done if or when it ever varies from what is being seen. This is why historically, especially as we exited the pre-modern era and entered the modern era, The giants of the martial arts today did not spend all that great a time with their teachers. This is true across the board. What they did do, however, is address this quantity-quality issue. So it, it was true back then. And it remains true today. And as such, when our concern or our centrality in our art is reduced, and I'm going to call it a reduction, to kihonwaza, many things can be done away with. And I think that's what we're seeing in many Aikido dojo all across the world. First and foremost, you see a reduction in the quantity and quality of reps. Many dojo have adopted more of an academic setting where one talks about Aikido and one listens about Aikido. There's no sense that they're wasting time because they're wasting time in which reps can be done. Or, many arts apply a high number of reps, but the quality is never addressed. So practices can become quite aerobic. When fighting in every other arena is an anaerobic endeavor. Well, a fall I'm after is external form. Then the dogi and the hakama become a costume. As I can do forms in anything. And so too are the rituals. And the sacredness of the space is not needed. The entirety of my practice is based upon a physicality through space. But this process of staying around the surface of the art, the external aspects of the art, ridding itself of any, of any sacred 
endeavor of any religious aim. This movement toward a secularization of the art. Towards an emphasis on Kihon. Where, unlike other Do, where the means remains a means and as such remains different from the end, Aikido, Aikido's emphasis on Kihon for Kihon's sake in combination with this secularization, there's nothing deeper, nothing more beyond what is seen with the eye. has been in existence since Kishimaru put his stamp on the art. The irony is this. This combination of Superficiality, exercise for exercise sake, did not start out as a secular movement. It was in fact a religious one. I've mentioned this movement before. I would highly recommend you research it on your own. The movement was called Muscular Christianity. It is a movement that gave birth to agencies and institutions such as physical fitness in the public school system, the Boy Scouts, Judo, Japanese martial arts as character building programs. And even the Nazi youth. As Christian thinkers took various notions that the body is a temple and tied them to emerging modern ways of thinking. Particularly whereby the phrase the body is a temple began to be understood as a metaphor. Where phrases like that lost their literal significance. So in some weird twist of history, you had this religious movement, but it was so influenced by modernity that it lost its concentric truth aspect. It was reduced to a metaphor and was eventually revamped into a secular endeavor. And when that happened, the aspects associated with the pre-modern practice of Budo lost their meaning, lost their significance, and more importantly, lost their utility. So the Dogi and Hakama become cosplay, and the Dojo becomes a gym. And the teacher becomes a coach or a class leader, maybe a friend.
And all that is thought to be good and reasonable, logical, sound. And anything different from that becomes suspect, dangerous, foolish, ignorant, and risky. And I say, true. As long as all you want. Is skill at Kihon Waza. Because that was not the aim. Of the old Budo. Instructional paradigms. That is the end result of a history that traced itself from Budo through muscular Christianity and to a superficial and secular understanding of the art. Originated and reified by Kishomaru Ueshiba. Not by Osensei. So if you want more than that, and again, I already said the former was a reduction, so I'm going to use the phrase more. If you want more than that, If you're going to move past the body, if you're going to involve anything more of your being than just your body, and there I would put even your intellect, if you want to move past your intellect, past your body, And if your aim is different from skill at Kihonwaza, if you could say and believe aloud that it avails me nothing to merely be skilled at Ikkyo under controlled environmental conditions, If you're looking to move beyond external levers and fulcrums and skeletal manipulation, if you're interested in the internal aspects, the energetic manipulation aspects, addressing the performance degradation of stress, addressing the cultivation of spontaneity with the art. If you're interested in seeing your practice as a concentric truth to everything that happens off the mat and outside of the dojo, if you could comfortably say, I must not know Ikkyo because I cannot reconcile this conflict in my marriage, then you're going to have to look past and deeper than these external physiological concerns. And you're going to have to bring onto the table your mind and the totality of what all that means and what all human beings have meant by mind. And then those aspects of being that I cannot fully trace to either my body or my mind, and that goes by the name of my spirit.
And when you bring your mind and your spirit as the arenas for your training, you're going to need a teacher. And let's just start there with a couple mathematical formulas so this makes sense. As has been discussed on earlier podcasts, training structurally is identified as moving from A to non-A, where non-A is considered greater than A. So again, colloquially, we would say, I am at this state of being, and I want to be at a different state of being, and that different state of being is in some way positive or greater or more desirable, something attractive to my first state of being. So a simple one would be, um, I don't know how to read. I'm going to get some training. I'm going to learn how to read. And it's better to know how to read than not how to read. That's the definition of training. And if that's the case, let's first address the kind of structural possibility of a teacher. So if that's the case, then it is the case for everyone who does it. So somebody who has achieved non-A longer than I or prior to me, meaning I'm still at A, then I have structurally created the possibility for a teacher. If, on the other hand, I hold that being at non-A prior to or for a longer duration is not possible, then I actually subvert the whole training model, including for myself. So if, if there is a person out there whose training in no way makes them capable of assisting me because they are incapable of knowing more or being able to do more, for example, then the possibility of moving to non-A is made impossible for everyone, including myself. So if you're training with the mindset that you're there to improve, then by default, you have posited the possibility that there are others out there who are more improved than I am at this moment in time. And this allows for the possibility of a teacher. And this holds true even at a physiological level, even at an external concern with Aikido Kihonwaza. But most people don't feel, don't see any value in that. So that the teacher's version of a technique is precisely that, a version. And this is why, for the most part, it's impossible to see where people train or who they train with. Because the majority of the Aikido world does not attempt to learn their teacher's technique.
nor do the majority of teachers correct people on technique to that degree that you would eventually see some sort of subconscious adoption of a teacher's identity or the teacher's technique. Most times the technique is shown and there's a huge discrepancy in variation. This is not the case everywhere, of course. It's not even the case in any location where somebody wants to learn for the sake of something beyond just the transmission of Kihonwaza. So if you take an athlete, for example, yes, the athlete wants to learn the form, but the athlete wants to learn the form for the sake of winning. And so the coach's biomechanical insights are what is being practiced and deviation from that biomechanical insight is discouraged both externally and internally to the deshi, to the athlete. Well, you don't see that in Aikido. There's a few places where you're able to identify a style or a teacher's style or influence. But for the most part, the overwhelming population is doing their own thing and is left to do their own thing. And this problem gets compounded when we move beyond the physiological concerns. When we are interested in some sort of non-A psychology or some sort of non-A spirituality. And it's because of this reason. Our minds... are of such a nature that we will be prone to usurping a teaching, warp it and manipulate it to fit within our current mental constructs. And this makes, by default, non-A an impossibility. So the mind I go into the dojo with is the mind that I understand all the teachings through and with. And as a result, there is no transformation of said mind. And the same thing happens at a spiritual level. And this has been well known by humans for a very long time. And it's precisely for this reason that the technology of the mentor was developed and utilized. And this problem just does not exist at a physiological external level to the art. It doesn't exist. The body will do what the body does. There's no usurp usurpation or corruption or degeneration of the teaching as the mind continues to use its constructs. The body will adapt in places where the mind will not. Meaning, let's say, I can't do this ikkyo because I don't have a strong enough stance. Well, if you keep doing the ikkyo, the stress on the stance will cause and strength adaptation to occur and you will eventually have the strength to do it. 
But when it comes to the mind or the spirit, and let's say a person has a mentality that includes a victim mentality, when the stress is applied to them, it does not generate an adaptation. Instead, it just reifies the victim mentality. So the role of the teacher is a technology aimed at addressing this problem and it does so in the following way. It's twofold predominantly. One, the teacher allows the deshi to see themselves. So in many ways, the teacher is a kind of mirror or a kind of light. Without the teacher, the eye sees but cannot see itself. When you put the teacher there, it's like the mirror and the eye can now look at itself. And this brings consciousness to where there was none. And consciousness is the catalyst for transformation. The second way the teacher assists us is because they are skilled already at these mind matters and at these spiritual matters. And they know our tendencies because they are theirs. But theirs happen within a consciousness that we do not yet have. And skilled teachers can now use these tendencies to generate within us new possibilities for acting and speaking and thinking. In both cases, what the teacher is allowing us to do is to assist us in getting out of our own way. Teachers help keep our practice valid and authentic by addressing the constructs of our minds and our spirit and their overwhelming tendency towards maintaining the status quo and their propensity for usurping the teaching, preventing us from moving from A to non-A. Now you say, whoa, whoa, why, why? True, I get it. But why? Let's just take spontaneity. Spontaneity with the art is not a technical matter. You can do forms for forever and you will not be spontaneous with the art. The historical record actually says the opposite. Forms are an obstacle to spontaneity. And you can run a very simple experiment. Just have people start coming in with whatever and you're not going to see much. And you got to make sure it's whatever. And whatever is not your dressage pony trick puppy.
coming in with their choreographed ukemi. Or you can run a simpler experiment, teach a form, get people to do lots of reps, get them going fast, get them going hard, and now slightly modify it. Now have them go again, and you'll see them, they'll be doing the last form. Spontaneity is not physiological in the sense that it is not an external matter of limbs and the use of the arms for and hands for fulcrum and levers. This, this is not it. Spontaneity of the art entails a certain cultivation of the mind and of the spirit. And that is why in dojo where the teacher does not hold the traditional role or in dojo where practice is centered on kihon waza, you also see a lack of jiwaza training. Those things all go together. But where Jiwaza is emphasized, you're going to see more centrality to the teacher and less centrality on Kihon Waza. Now, all the caveats that us moderns hold around the centrality of a teacher, all this unawareness about this history, how the world and the art was secularized. The cultural penetra penetration of movements like muscular Christianity. Even post-Freudian historical narratives we tell about ourselves to explain to ourselves the woes and pains we feel as we are raised and live within a culture that robs from us on a daily basis key components of wellness such as meaning. And the only way our pains make sense to us is to adopt those post-Freudian historical narratives where we suffered this abuse or that abuse. And we blame this parent or that parent for what ails us as adults. And we come to wholesale distrust anything that we think is not secular. Is not egalitarian. is not neutral, but that is
of a hierarchy or a centrality or an authority. Anything like that, we come to distrust and we build up a compendium of horror stories. And these are what we often tell ourselves So the reason why there are no teachers in Aikido and why we don't need one. But this is just more post-Freudian narratives we tell ourselves. The truth is, as was discussed, there's historical trends and they've just played themselves out and they continue to play themselves out. If you want to run with it, run with it. Get your reps in. Do them hard, do them fast. But if you want to move beyond that, that way doesn't work. That way actually becomes obstacle. To me, the horror stories that are often shared around the campfire of social media regarding this teacher or that teacher are not at all what I am referring to. Those, as I've said in other podcasts, those remind me of scams that I do as it, that I deal with as an investigator in law enforcement. And like all scams, they work by the same means: greed. The scammer uses the greed of the mark to feed their own greed. In the martial arts, it might be a material greed, but it could also be a power greed. And the only way that scam works is when the mark has a greed for power themselves. But a greed for power is part of A. It's A-level being. The lust for and the will to power is something of the spiritually immature. Its interest comes from the suffering they feel within them and the delusion that if they could only muster a little more power, they would stop the suffering. The teacher of which I speak, the one who is there as a mirror, the one who is there to aid us in keeping our practice from being usurped, keeping it authentic and consistent with our stated goal of moving from A to non-A. That teacher neither gains nor loses anything by the Deshi's presence or the Deshi's accomplishments. That teacher also has then nothing to give the Deshi. There is no rank for spiritual maturity. 
the achievement of spontaneity with the art does not need rank, does not need title. And the application of Aiki principles off the mat and outside the dojo is its own accomplishment. And it is validated not by the teacher, but by the practitioner. Where you see the abuses of power is because power in some sort of grand delusion is thought to be an elixir for pain. But power and the lust for power is the disease as is the fear behind it. And the only way the only true way of never exposing ourselves to the negative ramifications of power acted upon is not to control others, but to free ourselves from that delusion and that lust. Just like the mark in a money scam is set free by having no greed for that promised wealth. The traditional saying is, when the student is ready, the teacher will arrive. Well, this works both ways. If you have that lust for power and that fear exercising that delusion within you, that is going to be the teacher you find. Now, likely, as we all come to the art, spiritually immature, we have that in us. And we will be victim. All I'm saying is we don't have to be. And all I'm saying is you will always be. Until you rid yourself of this delusion. But if you need to look and you want to know what to look for, this teacher who neither gains nor loses anything by your presence or by your absence or by your achievements or your lack thereof, they will be hard to detect. You have to use your mind, your brain to observe yourself and to calculate appropriately. They will look like anyone else. They will talk like anyone else. Maybe even less so. You will think them no big deal easily ignored, easily dismissed. 
you may realize that over time you are the taker in the relationship and that they are and remain ever so the giver. You may ponder on all the ways you betray them and stand amazed at all the ways they act like you hadn't. They will practice commitment to you in ways you thought not possible or undeserved. They will smile at you where you would have snarled at another. They will give you what feels to you as an infinite amount of chances. to do right or to make a change or to move forward. And should you leave them and should you see them again You will be surprised. You'll reflect. Perhaps when you look upon them or you embrace that it feels as if you never left and as if you will always be welcome. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.